how hasn't it affected me? These are the words I thought when I've been asked about how my assault has impacted my life. I really could go on for hours describing the ways being raped has indelibly shaped the person I am today. This is probably similar to what most survivors will describe when they're asked about the effects sexual violence has had on their lives. So in this episode of Beyond Fear, Alyssa and I have an unscripted, open, and vulnerable conversation with two friends who are also survivors of sexual violence. Monisha Mo Miller is an adjunct lecturer of criminal justice at California State University Fullerton, where she teaches courses in juvenile justice and corrections. She received her master's of science degree from California State University, Los Angeles, in criminal justice administration. Her research includes trauma and delinquency, youth services, and juvenile justice reform. She has worked as a youth advocate in the juvenile justice field for over 20 years. Guy Hamilton Smith is a fellow at the Sex Offense Litigation and Policy Resource Center at the Mitchell Hamline School of Law. His work focuses primarily on the ways in which legal responses to sexual violence are ineffective and harmful, particularly focusing on post-sentence registration laws and indefinite civil imprisonment. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina. In this episode, we speak with Guy and Mo about the impact of sexual violence. This conversation may be difficult to listen to, and it may be confronting for some. Nevertheless, we hope you will join us as we take you beyond fear. So it is so wonderful to have Mo Miller and Guy Hamilton-Smith on the podcast today. Um, Lex and I have been looking forward to this episode for quite some time. When we first began writing out the episodes that we were going to be doing, we knew we wanted to do an episode specifically on the effects of sexual victimization. And we could have done that from a very academic research perspective, and we will include some of that information in this podcast. But it was really important for us to also include the voices of other people who have experienced sexual harm. And so on today's episode, we are going off script, if you will, and we will be having a very candid conversation with Mo and Guy, two people who I just have the utmost respect for, who inspire me every single day. Um, And so... I am just so grateful that the two of you both agreed to be on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. So I thought we would start the episode, whichever one of you would like to go first, but people who have listened to the first several episodes of the podcast have heard a little bit about my experience and about Alexa's experience. And we'll talk a little bit more about those experiences later, but I wanted to give you both the opportunity to speak to your specific experience and what brought you to the podcast today. And I think too, Warren's an additional comment, like share as much or as little as you want, whatever you think is appropriate and what you feel comfortable with. Thank you for the safe space. Um, I would say uh, my assault, which was a, a date rape at 16, um, which looking back now was violent, not uh, violent. I'm just going to say violent because you can't put it on the spectrum, no. right? Held down, 
forced to have sex. It was violent. But what was what was interesting to me is at that time when that happened, it was like, okay, it happened. It was, you know, well, well, move on, clean yourself up, move on, go to school the next day. But I realized that it was the sexual abuse beforehand that had geared me or or uh, groomed me up to that point where when it happened, it was just a matter of fact. It was a matter, you know, okay, it's a matter of fact. And it, it, um, it changed, well, when people, when I hear my surviving family say, you know, that moment changed me, I think that moment, um, epitomized what had already changed in my life, right? My very first sexual, um, harm, I remember I was four. I, it's so clear. I remember the little cute little panties I was wearing with the flowers and the ruffles. And I remember the little dress I wore. And um, um, I didn't wear dresses for a long time, but that was the, I think that moment there. And then after that, I think I was just groomed up into the point where the my um, offender found me and I was a perfect mark because I had already had the signs of um, defeat, manipulate, you know, you can manipulate me, gullibility or however you want to say that. Um, and possibly uh, I was for sure that I had victim written across my forehead for a very, very long time. I think um, looking back at it all, I would say that my sexual harm story starts at four and it literally, you know, groomed up groomed me up to that moment at 16 where the actual violence of you know a sexual harm happened but I mean the whole time it was violent but just meaning it was that point where um um yeah it was it was up until that point thank you so much for being willing to share such intimate pieces of you um it really means a lot that you would be so forthcoming with us and with our listeners. Guy, if you would like to share. You know, so my story and, and how I come to uh, work in this space is like a complicated one. And, you know, a good, a good way to talk about it might be to talk about an experience I had with, um, with church. I t- remember when I first started attending the church, I went to the, um, the priest and I, I told the priest my story, which my story involves the reason why I went to law school was because I had I went through the legal system as a criminal defendant where I had been convicted of a sex offense. And it was an offense for which I was guilty. I committed a crime. And I didn't know if the church would even allow me to attend. In that time frame, there is an argument going back in the op-ed pages of the local newspaper about should people who, um, you know, should sex offenders be allowed to attend church? There is a controversy about that. And so here I was trying to attend church. And I'll never forget my priest. He looked at me and without missing a beat, he said, well, you're no different from anyone else. And so he said, of course. But I didn't tell anyone else. I didn't tell any of the other members of the church, uh, because it was, that's a hard, that's a difficult conversation to have. And that changed. So I had been going through law school and I then, um, graduated and applied to, 
take the Kentucky bar exam um, to then have a license and practice. So the Supreme Court, the Kentucky Supreme Court said, well, we're not going to let you take the bar exam. So went through law school and you um, did all that, but we're not going to let you practice um, on account of your conviction. And that became front page news. I was essentially outed. And so that Sunday, my priest called me on the phone and he said, well, guy, I just want to let you know that, you know, people are talking about your story. Like people know now and they're talking and I just wanted to give you a heads up. And so that Sunday, uh, you know, I, I, I had a choice to make, you know, do I, do I, do I show up? Uh, do I show up or do I not? And everything in me was not wanting to, not wanting to go to church. I didn't want to show up, but I did, you know, instead I walked through the doors and, um, I made a beeline for my seat. I didn't make eye contact with anyone. I just, uh, essentially ran to my usual seat and sat down. I closed my eyes and I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. And uh, I typically sat alone, but that day I felt two people sit down um, next to me side by side. And um, I figured, that, well, here's the security team. They're ready to throw me out. Uh, and I opened my eyes and it's two of the grandmotherliest uh, matrons of the church, Billy and Cece were their names. And I remember thinking that's an odd choice for a security team to 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 throw pitch me pitch me out into the street. And uh, Cece leaned over and she whispered in my ear, "We got your back." I mean, I still get you know, I still get kind of emotional. Even I mean, I've told this story a bunch, but um, I still get emotional thinking about it because I I showed up that day, and in doing that. In making that choice, that whole community showed up for me. And what they showed me was that I could be more than my past. I could be more than the worst thing that, that I'd ever done. And that was ultimately what sort of made me pivot and brought me to this work. And I, I said that I had been convicted of a, of a sex offense, which I was guilty of. And so to back up just a little bit, the crime that I was convicted of was possession of illegal images. I was, I, when I was in my teenage years, I developed a really unhealthy relationship with internet pornography. And um, I essentially would download everything I came across. And when I was about 16, that came to include images that were also were not legal. And I began to download those as well. I didn't know how to stop. I mean, I really didn't know who to talk to. I was really ashamed of my behavior. Um, and I, I really did want a way out and I just didn't know what that way was. And thankfully that came when, uh, my girlfriend at the time found all this pornography on my computer, including some of it that was not legal. And she went to the police and the police came and, um, you know, they, so they just walked me right around the corner and, and put me in an interrogation room. And, uh, for the first time in my life, I was able to get honest and despite not being, you know, being the least free that I'd ever been, I felt free. Like, I felt like that, I mean, that was something that in retrospect, I think, saved my life in a lot of ways. Prior to that, I was also the victim of sexual violence. You know, I was raped by a 16-year-old boy when I was eight years old. And 
that experience, the world was became a much scarier place for me. And so I found a lot of safety and solace in my room. And I was, you know, that's where I had the internet. And that's where I could get all of these, you know, needs met. And that's where I encountered pornography. And then my experience with pornography is that it became like a drug where it just became worse and worse and worse and worse. So I have like these multiple identities in, in this um, space. Survivor, um, but also offender. Uh, someone who's also caused someone harm. And so I know that that makes me a a controversial pick to be doing this work. So anyway, thank you for letting me share. I'm sorry that was so lengthy, but um, it's it's a complicated story. They always are complicated <laughs> stories, right? It's like a, yeah. But thank you for sharing that with us and really... It, everything you said is really important to understand and to understand your story completely. So I appreciate that you're willing to dive deep with us. Absolutely. Too. You know, and I was listening to Guy, when I was listening to you talk about, you know, starting with the, I committed an offense that caused harm. Um, and then going back to the story of experiencing rape when you were eight and, um, is really getting to these, the consequences and sometimes lifelong consequences of experiencing sexual victimization. Um, like even when we've done the healing work, one of the things that I always say to people when they ask, they're like, how do I get over this? And I'm like, this is not something that you ever get over. This is something that you learn to get through and you learn to navigate and you learn to live with because it leaves an indelible mark on you. Right. There's this great book that's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it talks about how trauma changes you at the cellular level. Um, you know, and Lex, you and I have talked about this before when somebody asks you, like, how has this impacted your life? It's like, well, how hasn't this impacted your life in every way? Um, so I wonder if we can go there. Um, and Mo, if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that, this very thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, that's the, uh, if you saw, I struggled with my story because it's, it's still hard to tell, but I can t absolutely tell you how this has affected um, my life per se. And just thinking about um, um, starting a family, <laughs> how nervous was I to start a family? And uh, uh, the story that stands out the most is here I am, I'm a, I'm a new mom. And uh, my firstborn is a boy. And I'm just, I'm already nervous I'm going to drop the kid, right? <laughs> like you're already nervous. Oh. And one day I change his diaper and he has a full-on erection. And I lost my mind. Like I flipped out. I started crying. Because I thought... I, you know, I had thought that I caused, you know, harm to this child. Like, why would this kid, child, he's a baby, have this full, and I, and I remember just feeling it in my body, shame and terror, full on terror. So, you know, I, I, I like, well, he, he's naked. I got to cover him. And I, how do I even get back in the room that, you know, my husband comes and, Hey, what's going on? And I'm like freaking out. And, and I remember, 
you know, having this episode, you know, and I, and my husband's like, calm down. He gets me calm. So he calls, you know, he's like, you should call your therapist and you should call what I didn't, what I really ended up doing was called the pediatrician nurse because she was so beautiful to me in the hospital. And I'm going through this story with her and I was like, and I took off his diaper and what did I do wrong? He had an erection. I know I caused harm to this child. Like I'm already thinking about it. And she goes, she goes, no, penises work from the day they're born. And I was like, what? She says, yeah, that was natural. And I was like, what do you mean that's natural? So then it then it hit me. Here I I was all I was 29 when I had him. I'm almost 30. And I didn't know how a penis worked because that's not what its function was in my life. And then she immediately went to self-care. She immediately went to care for me. Um, how did you not know this, sweetheart? And she goes, Were you sexually abused too? And I was like, Whoa, lady, don't read my mind here. But I was honest with her. I'm like, well, yes. She goes, well, okay. So yes. So then she sat down and said, this little boy will put his hand down his diaper. Don't freak out. He will one day walk up to you and say, this feels great. Don't freak out because it's normal behavior where I was groomed that it was for sexual pleasure as a child. Right. So my warped sense of, you know, just being a mom was to a little boy with natural biological functions that my experience with sex and um, grooming and what it was used for was completely, it just changed me being a mom. And then right back 22 months later, here comes his little sister. And all of a sudden there's this beast in me. Like I will kill, like I, it was to a point where I was like, if Jesus Christ himself molested my child, I'm going to burn down the world. He don't even have to worry about the devil because he's going to have me. Right. Mm -hmm. It was, it was, so I would say that it gave me a layer of, um, of things that I had, that I was worried about that when you're, when you don't have this in your life, well, I would, I want to be nice about it, but screw it. When you don't have this, in your in, in your DNA, like at this point, like it's in you. Your body's keeping this score. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about this. I'm a silver lining gal. Listen, knows this about me. I always find the silver lining in the story. Um, when I'm at work, because I am a, a faculty member and I teach criminal justice, when I'm in the classroom and I'm lecturing those hard parts, when I'm penal coding and talking about the definitions of forcible rape and consent. And, and I look in the crowd and I look in my audience and I look at my students. What I love about the body keeping the score is immediately my body lets me know there's a survivor. Yep. It's, it's, it's immediate. It, 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 and, and in the same sense, that guy is creepy across the street. So, you know, so in, in, how has it, changed or affected me I just I wouldn't have those what I call my superpowers if I you know so that's my silver lining yes this is a horrible thing and it's tragic what happened to me but now it's time to change it and make it something good yeah I hear so many similarities when you talk about the consequences for you 
I hear so many of the similarities in the consequences for me in raising two little boys. Guy, if you wanted to share a little bit about um, the consequences of experiencing rape at eight. I certainly resonate with, um, you know, a, a great deal of what Mo shared. Uh, and I think it was really actually only relatively recently that I sort of came to terms with um, the impact that that had on me. Um, and I was able to move past my, my anger about it. I was angry for a long time. Um, you know, I wanted to kill this person. Um, I had, you know, just like that kind of level of um, anger about it. And, um, you know, it wasn't until, you know, until reaching adulthood that I, I began to realize that, um, you know, his father had likely done the same thing to him that he was undoing to me, that he was someone who had also experienced harm. And that, you know, when both of those truths can like live in the same time and the same person, um, and you can recognize the harm that someone has caused, but realize that that's not um, everything that they are or everything, certainly not everything that you want them to be. Um, then for me, it became a lot easier to, um, I guess, accept what was, accept that that was just a fact of my past, a fact of my childhood. And, um, because for a lot of years, yeah, I struggled with, um, I, you know, before, before that rape, I was pretty happy. Go, I was a happy go lucky kid. Um, I had, you know, made friends really easily, you know, I just sort of run up to people and be like, will you be my friend? And I mean, that was how I made friends, <laughs> literally, literally doing that. And then, um, you know, here, um, he was this, you know, he was an older kid. And of course, when you're eight years old, you know, what do you want other than to be, um, in the in crowd with the older kids. So if the older kid wants you to come into his bedroom because he wants to show you something, then what, as an eight year old, you're going to be like, I'm in the, I'm in the club. Like I'm one of the, I'm being called up to the big leagues now. And, um, you know, uh, and that was, you know, that was where he raped me. And, um, so there was a betrayal. And so after that, the world became much scarier for me. Uh, I struggled a lot with, um, and of course also going through, you know, then a couple of years after that, you know, going through puberty and, um, I got bullied a lot in school. And so, um, it just really made, um, and I'm not, um, and I should be careful to, I want to be careful here because I don't want to, um, leave anyone with the impression that. Like, I don't have responsibility for any harm that I've caused, be it with my um, my offense or anything else I've done in my life. I mean, I think, honestly, some of the most harmful things that I think I've done in my life have been totally legal. They've not been crimes at all. Um, not to, And not to say that my crime wasn't a serious one um, or that I didn't contribute to the harm of others that way as well. Um, just that... You know, I don't think necessarily our definition of what is a crime and what is not a crime tracks harm. But, um, yeah, I think that my rape also played a role in, um, you know, my development of a, uh, you know, if you want to call it an addiction or compulsion with Internet pornography, um, just because it um, introduced me to sex at an extremely young age, um, the idea of sex. And also um, that it, uh, you know, it sort of made it such that I spent, I became very introverted. And so I spent a lot of time 
Um, I spent a lot of time in, um, you know, in my room with a computer, which is, I mean, that was sort of how my offense happened. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, you, and then I can feel the, um, you know, I mean, the effects of it throughout, you know, the course of my life. Now that I think about it, when I told my parents about my, I told my parents about my rape the same day, uh, that it happened. And I remember feeling really, um, like they were, of course, I mean, if it were your kid telling you that they had just been raped, how would you react to You would, of course, be, you would be devastated by that. You would be uh, furious. You would be in tears. You would, and, and they were. And that was the response of my parents. But I was so young, I didn't understand that they weren't upset at me, you know. Uh, like, I, I just had the distinct memory of being like, I did something terrible. Um, this is my fault because otherwise they wouldn't be so upset. And like echoes of that have like reverberated throughout like the rest of my, you know, the rest of my life. Like I don't, I don't say that like that abdicates, that absolves me of any culpability and harm that I've caused other people because those are also my choices. Um, you know, those are also choices that I made. Just like he made, he made a choice you know, even if he were, you know, raped by his father, he still made a choice to rape me. You know, in episode four, um, Alexa and I both talked about uh, sort of the same thing that you're you're getting at where, you know, I talked about how during my rape, I remember like looking at this man and thinking, what happened to you? What happened in your life to make you think that this was okay, that this kind of violence was okay to commit against somebody? Um, and yeah, holding both of those things is really, really difficult. And the other thing that I hear in both in Mo and in Guy talking about this is sort of the, yes, we have choices that we get to make. I know we are not absolved of our responsibility or culpability when we cause harm, but that also, you know, as we said, the body keeps the score, right? So, you know, I think about in my own life, um, you know, I still, it's 21 years and I can't hear loud noises, like fireworks go off in the neighborhood and I hit the pavement, right? Being in large crowds, I can't handle, um, roughhousing with my kids, I can't do, Alexa was with me, right? So my rape happened on a beach. Alexa was with me the first time I swam in the ocean. 19 years later, like I had been in like the little surf, but I have not had not gone out into the water in 19 years. And Alexa was there when I did that. Um, and so it's all of these things that you don't even think about, right? So like right now living through COVID-19, um, you know, you see these arguments about people wanting to wear a mask, not wanting to wear a mask, and not thinking about um, what that takes some people to do. Like putting a mask on my face and being in public, there's a trauma response that comes with that for me that's really, really hard to navigate. And that's after doing the healing work. So then, then I think about some of the stuff like, alcohol and drug abuse, right? Both right after 
May Rape happened for, you know, the first couple of years after May Rape happened to still struggling now. Um, you know, I'm 279 days sober. Yay. Right? Like, um, thank you. Um, and while I made a choice to use again, I also recognize, like, even though that was my choice and even though I'm responsible for that choice, I can also see the link to trauma. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think a lot of our behavior is explained by our past experiences, and that's not to excuse or justify your present behavior or future behavior, but it, it they are linked, you know, right. and they always right. will be. And for me, after I was assaulted, I developed a really severe eating disorder, and I was – I literally came to realize through therapy I was trying to disappear I was truly trying to protect myself from ever being re-victimized re I wanted to completely disappear from the world and I think that that's also a common response for some people and I also think that there's a connection between eating disorders and addiction um, because there is that sense when you're in complete control over your body and what you're putting into it, it gives you a sense of a high. And, you know, you chase that to, f to make everything else go away. You drown everything else out that you can control this moment. And it's extremely um, difficult to recover from drugs and alcohol and that type of substance abuse and also getting over the eating disorder, I would say, I don't think there is a getting over. It's another thing that you just kind of deal with, that there's always going to be a complicated relationship between me and food. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you learn, you sort of just learn to do the best that you, you can do, you know, and and that's the reality of it all. So, Whoa, wait a second. I cut from, I want to say junior high through 21. I just, and it was, it was, and it felt good. It was, it was just, you know, when you talk about addiction and like, I just needed that little, and I had, you know, I knew how to hide razors and I knew how to hide sharp objects to get it done. And um, just the places on my body I chose to cut, I'm thinking about it now. They were all sexual. It's a very interesting you know, inner thigh, behind your breasts, you know, your thumbs, you know, it's just you saying that. And that's a, I guess that's something that needed to come out for me so I can heal that part too, because I just didn't think of it until you said so. You know, I mean, I, I also, I mean, I, this is like a part of my story that like I'd forgotten existed, but I mean, yeah, I, when I was in high school, I used to cut too. I think I still have some scars from it. Um, I, when I was, and when I was in, yeah, you know, when I was in middle school, I attempted suicide and I was, um, uh, you know, put into an inpatient psychiatric hospital for, you know, for a month. And I mean, I can, you know, it's like I can, yeah, there are all those and also addict, yeah, addiction, um, drugs, alcohol. Like I'm thankful that I've never, um, I've never picked up drugs, but like pretty much anything else, like. You know, for me, pornography was just like another kind of a drug. But then I discovered that, oh, there's alcohol, too. And there's workaholism and there's um, food, I think, can absolutely be an, another kind, just another kind of addiction, just another kind of drug. 
Um, and I've like, you know, it's like almost as if like, I don't cut myself anymore. I haven't done that in many years, but it's like, I've just found other ways less, um, literal to be, to, to engage in like self harm behavior, like self destructive behavior. Like I think I can certainly cut myself with workaholism, you know, like not having healthy boundaries around work. And so that's just like another kind of way of hurting myself that isn't quite as um, literal as it used to be. But I think it's still like the, for me, like the connection is like still there, you know, between that behavior and engaging in self-destructive behavior and um, that desire to kind of like feel, it's almost like I want to feel in control, in control. It's like, you know, well, I don't know if, um, the world's going to hurt me in really unpredictable ways, but I can, you know, damn sure be in control of this one. But you just really, you just really made a few connections for me at work. At work, because I you, lately, you know, struggling as a black woman in academia has been really challenging along top of being a mom and being a community member but you just really gave me an aha moment I'm almost in tears because you just settled so much stuff at work it also was an aha moment for me I think it was it is actually an aha moment in a conversation I had with Alyssa um you know in LA you know really realizing that you know, I, yeah, I think we're all smart, driven, dedicated, passionate people. Great. And, and I think society rewards us for that in a lot of ways and tells us that those are good things. And I think that generally they are. But I also think that I don't, I'm not good with boundaries and like putting those up and, and saying like, oh, I need to like take care of I need to take care of myself. Like I'm worth taking care of, like I'm worth happiness and I'm worth these things. But as you were saying the work thing, I was kind of having like a moment too, because it's like, I know what I should do and what I should potentially say no to or put boundaries around. But I think part of it for me is the constant need to prove my worth. And that is certainly for me very much connected to being assaulted. And that that idea also of punishing myself like i'm going to mm-hmm. work this hard and i'm going to stay up all night because i you know i'm not worth much anyway but maybe if i do this and i complete this they'll all see and i will somehow feel worthwhile yeah. bingo there it is there it is we get the award or we get the job or we get the pat on the head or whatever and then and that's great and then we finally feel like we're we're worthy, but then it goes away for five minutes. More. We need, yeah, it works for five minutes, and then we need, and then we need more, we right? Need more, we can't, yeah. And it's just, God, and what a vicious, what a vicious cycle. That and is. that's like addiction too. You need more. You need to keep getting that feel, that high, that feeling. You know, I remember um, sitting in my therapist's office uh, many years ago. My former therapist in Washington State. And we were talking about my resume, right? And all of these people over time have said like, oh my God, Alyssa, you are amazing. You are so, um, like, when do you ever stop? You just keep writing. You've written all, you're so prolific. Mm-hmm. And I didn't recognize it until sitting in my therapist's office talking about my work. And she said, okay, like we get it. You're smart. 
but like what's <laughs> below your brain? I was so disconnected right. from my body. Like I remember one time putting my hand, mm. we had a, a wooden door frame and I put my hand on the door frame and I was in such a dissociative place that I had a splinter through my hands and I didn't even feel it. My hand was bleeding. I didn't even know it mm. because I was so disconnected and my addiction, um, to my work, right? It was like, if I could just write the next book, if I could just write the next article, if I could just do the next public talk, I could show that I had healed, that I was worthy and it was mm-hmm. never enough. And so now I found a way to not put so much into the work. And yet what's constantly in my head is you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. You're never going to yeah. be good enough. Uh, I mean, I just, I'm just like, uh, uh, I don't know. Are you all reading my journal or is that what you all are doing? That's a silver lining effect, though, because like I said, when you have these experiences and you get with people who are in that space and then we and then we make it safe and you start telling your stories. Now you're connecting the dots. Now it's. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, your journal guy. I read it last night because I wrote it last night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is really, it's really just, um, yeah, I mean, to be able to, like, to recognize that, um, yeah, that, like, I don't know, it's what I what I know, and I'm very fortunate for, like, you know, I became involved in, in recovery communities um, pretty, pretty soon after my arrest, and um, what I, what I learned very quickly is that the power of community in terms of being able to heal, in terms of being able to, um, to transform your pain into something else. I mean, for me, it's like to be able to talk openly with other survivors. Um, I mean, it's, I, I can't, I don't really have words to describe, I think how meaningful that's been for me um, and how, how essential it is, but it's, you know, like also the shame that society kind of um, layers on top of not just sexual violence, but sexuality in general, I think makes it hard to have these communities. I wanted to say like just two quick things. And one is I think that there is a certain level of encouragement for survivors to come out and share their stories. But what's less maybe accepted by the rest of society and what you do find with groups of survivors is the ability to talk about the impact on you that's still happening. Like, I don't have to show up healed to you guys, but I feel like everywhere else I do. And that can be Hmm. very exhausting. (laughs) Um, And it's nice to be able to drop that for a moment. And that also speaks to something this woman who is a genius, but I can't think of her name, said about healing from intimate harm and that requires intimate connection. I think her name was Alyssa oh, Ackerman. Oh. <laughs> heard um, of her? I've absolutely <clears throat> heard of her. She's pretty she's good. I know she's, she's great, she's right? But yeah, that that healing happens in front of others. Mm. And I think that that's so true because survivors and people who perpetrate harm we other them we isolate them and we don't give them the opportunity to have a community of support shame destroys the ability to have community it destroys the ability to be able to show up for all our listeners if you could see me right now like i can feel 
the wanting to like make myself small and cover my face so that people don't see me. And yet it is the work that I have done mm-hmm. to not do that, that has connected me with people like you, like Mo and I, like Mo, the first day that we met standing in the mailroom at work, it is because neither one of us had the shame veil on. Like we made eye contact with one another and it was like, mm-hmm. I have known you mm-hmm. For lifetimes, right? And it was that shared Mm -hmm. survivor, right? And it was my same experience meeting Alexa for the first time and meeting Guy for the first time. Like It was like, I see you. I see you for all of you and I love you. And we can have this space together to be whatever it is we need to be, right? We don't have to have the, the, the mask on like I'm fully healed. Because if I had to show up that like Alexa and I are working on this podcast together, <laughs> she is my ride or die. If I had to show up every day with this mask on, like I am fully healed and right. this doesn't affect me at all, mm. I couldn't yeah. do it. Right. No way. No way. Right, right. Yeah. So let's shift this. Mm-hmm. Right. As we sort of come to the end of the podcast, Mo, you have talked a bit about like the silver lining. Uh, and that's kind of where I want to mm-hmm. end. I want to end with a story or stories of hope. Right. That you can come out the other side of this, mm-hmm. even if it still affects you, like the body keeps the scores with you always. And. Look at what we are doing. So my silver lining is my life absolutely right now. Um, married my best friend. We've been married um, um, together almost 30 years. Married for 26 of those, 30. I have three beautiful children. Um, my oldest is a lawyer. My middle child wants to be a physicist. Yeah, I don't know. My youngest is a, <laughs> my youngest wants to be a biologist. So the, the silver lining is I have this amazing, wonderful life that I get to share with a, a man who cares about me, who protects me and um, makes sure that I know that I'm worth every moment of his time. So the silver lining for me is just the, the, the I get to get up and live this life and go to a job that I absolutely love. You know, I love being in front of my students. I love being on the ground level with them. I hate COVID for pushing me away yeah. from them. But the truth, the truth of the fact, the, the truth and the fact of the matter is I have a wonderful, enjoyable, fantastic, fantastic life. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, amen. I mean, can, can I just say amen? I mean, that, uh, I, mean I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, in my experience, like all of the things in my life that have been painful or have been what I would say would be the hot, the, like the hard times in, in my life have ultimately been the things that I think have informed my development of who, you know, the, the man that I am today the most. And ultimately are, I think, oftentimes the things I'm most grateful for at the end of the day. Not that I wish that they, not that I'm glad that they happened or I wanted them to happen or I asked for them to happen because, yeah, if I could, if I could choose course, who wouldn't choose to just live without pain, without um, anything happening to them? But ultimately, like 
they've all helped me make meaning out of it. And they've helped me, you know, make meaning out of this life and try to figure out how, what can I do to try to help others? Like what, what's the, what's the best way for me to go about doing that? I wouldn't trade any of it. No, I don't think, you know, um, I've have, you know, I got to, you know, I got to marry my best friend. Um, I get, I have, you know, many, many, many more friends now than I think I've probably ever had at any point in my life. And I also don't have to have any secrets, you know, in, in, in so many ways, it's like, I'm, um, I'm free. Amen. Amen. Lex? Um, well, not to sort of be redundant, but I do think it's sort of another pattern between all of us is that I too married my very best friend. Um, and I feel really lucky to be with someone that I can also be my whole self with. And, you know, that's okay. And I don't worry that I sound crazy or that I'm mean or that I'm overly emotional because I am overly emotional. But, um, I think that that's a good thing too. Like I do feel intensely and I think I feel intensely because I've experienced a significant trauma and harm and I did feel like my life was going to end at one point, not just during the assault, but when I was drinking a lot and when I was doing horrible things to myself, I didn't want to live. Um, And now I have a sense of I feel joy about things. And so as crummy as some days are and as hard as they are and as angry as some days I am at that that this happened, I experience great joy and I feel extremely lucky to be in the position I'm in to have the privilege of sharing my story and using my voice to reach my students and to, you know, help hopefully be helping others. You know, not to be redundant, but I, <laughs> but I hear you, all of you, um, but Lex, like, you know, sometimes my wife, Angie, gives me a hard time because I feel joy so viscerally, um, and I don't think she quite gets why, but when you have been in the darkest, darkest place. And when you thought your life was going to end because of it, both during the assault and after it, also by your own hand, right? I attempted suicide twice afterwards. Um, when you know that low, like you can't feel the joy without the pain. And so I feel joy. I feel emotions so strongly, no matter what emotion it is. Um, and I feel awe in ways that maybe others who haven't experienced something like this can't or don't, um, because I recognize that I may not have been here to experience it. And, you know, Angie is my everything. You know, we've been together since I was 19. She saved me from myself. Uh, I was going down a spiral that I wasn't going to come back from. And she saved me from myself. And now we we're here 18 years later, we have two beautiful children who are the absolute light of my world. Um, and so in my personal life, like I can't imagine 
anything other than what I have right now. Um, and that's, that wasn't possible without this experience that happened. And then I think about my professional life. Um, you know, in my office, I have hundreds of little elephant trinkets and all of them are from students and other survivors that I have worked with, but um, students and also people who have caused harm, who after we are done working together, they know how much I love elephants and what they stand for. Uh, and so they buy me these little elephant trinkets and they're from all over the world. And my whole office is adorned in them. And I know the story behind each and every one of those. And I know that it is through my experience that I'm able to make a difference in the lives of my students, the lives of people close to me, but also the lives of people who I will never know that I touched because of this. And that gives me hope every single day. So out of the pain that all of us have experienced, there comes joy and there comes hope. And I am just so grateful to all of you. Um, but today, especially Mo and Guy for being willing to have this conversation with me and Alexa. And I know that it'll be really meaningful uh, for our listeners. All three of you are people that inspire me. You are three people that I respect so much. Um, and I cannot wait for this episode to go live. So after listening to our conversation with Mo and Guy, Alyssa and I wanted to share a little bit about how the experience was for us and reflect on it and share that conversation with you, our listeners, as well. I really did not want to have a conversation about the impact of sexual violence that day. I was dreading it, and I... I guess sometimes it just is something that it takes a lot out of you to have those conversations. It can be exhausting, but it was so beneficial. Like I walked away feeling lighter and better because I think it's really important when you talk about sexual violence to others, it's important to have people that get it. A person who hasn't experienced something like that can, of course, empathize and support, but there's nothing really quite the same as talking to somebody who really gets it because they've been in that position. And so they know exactly what you're talking about when you talk about the effects that rape or sexual assault or child sexual abuse has had in your life. Yeah, you know, there are definitely days that I don't want to talk about this at all, that I feel like I have talked about it enough and I am talked out and then I have conversations like the one that we had that day, and it's really refreshing. What you said about people who have experienced sexual harm, they know. And in many ways, it is a silent knowing. And I have that with you all the time, Lex, that I can just look at you a certain way on a Zoom call like this, and you know exactly what I'm feeling. And the conversation with Guy and Mo was so refreshing because it was two more people who understand in that way. And so I left that conversation lighter as well. I wanted to talk for a moment about why we asked Guy to be on the episode specifically. As he has talked about, he is a controversial pick. 
because he is somebody who experienced rape when he was eight, but he is also somebody who was convicted of a sexual offense. So that makes him controversial, right? In many ways, the same way it makes people like us controversial and that we are sex crimes policy experts, sex crimes experts, but also survivors, and we merge the personal and the professional. Guy is very much the same way. For those of you who don't know, Guy was convicted of a child pornography offense when he was, I'm actually not sure how old he was, but that he talks about it in a way that it was, his rape at eight was not responsible. His sexual violence was not what caused his offense. And he's very clear about that, that he is responsible for, and he is accountable for his offense. But one of the reasons it was important to include him was because, as we've talked about in previous episodes, sexually offending in the future, like when you look at people who sexually offend, you often find that they have experienced some form of victimization themselves. And so having somebody like Guy on the episode drove home that point from previous episodes. And, you know, it's always, I guess, another aspect of the conversation that we wanted to emphasize as well is that each of us have experienced sexual harm a long time ago. So we're looking back at things with a vantage point of having gotten through a lot since maybe our rape, sexual assault, child sexual abuse. We've been through a lot of years. And a lot of therapy. (laughs) And a lot of therapy and a lot of work because that healing process is a process and there's really no end to it. And it it does take a lot of work, but there are days where I feel like, wow, I have achieved some pretty good things since I was assaulted. But then there are other days where it feels very fresh still. And that's the reality of the situation is that for any survivors who are listening, you get it and you you keep healing because that's good days and bad days are sort of part of the package and healing is a continuous journey and there's nothing wrong with that it's challenging but there's nothing wrong with you when it feels that way yeah you know i talk about this a lot with my therapist in that for all intents and purposes i'm good Mm -hmm. right i'm in a good place and we ended the conversation with Guy and Mo, all of us talking about the silver lining, where we are now and hope for the future. And, you know, so I talk with my therapist about how I'm good. Mm-hmm. And then something will happen. There will be some trigger and I'm right back there. And then we have to work through that. And there are days, and I have said this to her and to friends, like I, I have had friends who have said to me, you're so strong. And I have said recently, I don't want to be strong. I don't want to deal with trauma anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's 21 years out. Yep. So for any survivors who are listening, anybody who is close to a survivor, we wanted to drive home the point that healing is not linear, that sexual harm is not something that you just get over. It really does leave an indelible mark on your, on your person. For the rest of your life, it informs how you navigate the world. 
it doesn't have to define you, but there will always be sideswipes. There will always be triggers. There will always be days that are really, really hard. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, but it definitely reminds me, that conversation that we had with Guy and Mo really reminds me how far all of us have come. Yeah. You know, I left the conversation lighter, but also it's really hard to hear the stories of any survivor when you know this so deeply, but it's especially hard when you hear it from people that you love and care about, especially because it's so, it makes it so fresh. We immediately go to the place where that trauma occurred in our own lives, mm -hmm. right? The trauma in me sees the trauma in you. So when it's somebody that you love and care about, it's hard to know that somebody that you love and respect has been through something that you know is so terrible. And so that came up for me too. So even though I left the conversation lighter, there was also this piece of me. I know Mo's story. I know Guy's story. I know your story. It's still hard to hear. Yeah. It's, it, it's always heartbreaking because... <sighs> Because we know, yeah, like you said, it's just we know know it without it even being said. And so it's always a challenge and my heart breaks for people that have to go through this. But like you said, there's a silver lining and I'm impressed by all three of you. And I think that you are all survivors that are making a difference. And that's an incredible thing to share. So, As are you, right? That was the whole point of this podcast <laughs> was to make a difference, right? True. So I hope we are. I hope we are. So all that being said, there were some points in the conversation with Mo and Guy that we wanted to clarify, that we wanted to give a little bit more information about. We will also include this information on the blog post that goes with this episode. But so one of the things that Mo talked about was a rape that she experienced when she was 16. That was preceded by years and years and years of child sexual abuse. We want our listeners to know that that's actually really common. We have talked about adverse childhood experiences before. People who experience trauma in childhood are more likely to experience trauma as they get older and in adulthood. And so the revictimization hypothesis predicts that individuals, especially women, who were sexually abused as children have an increased risk for assault in adulthood. For example, there was a study that found that women who experienced child sexual abuse were at least twice as likely to be sexually assaulted as adults. And the more severe the child sexual abuse, the higher the risk of assault in adulthood. There was a study in 1999 that found that child sexual abuse involving penetration tripled the risk for rape as an adult. So for any of you listening who did experience childhood sexual abuse and then experienced assault later in life, you are certainly not alone. 
we hear this all the time that people who have been victimized are then victimized again. And you heard Mo say, and I've heard a lot of survivors say this, that they felt like the word victim was written across their forehead. It is not your fault. If you have experienced child sexual abuse and then a rape, it is very, very common, more common than you would think. So just keep that in mind if this is something that you have experienced. During this episode, each of us talked about some of the negative behavioral and psychological consequences that we experienced due to sexual violence. We wanted to share with you um, some of those numbers and prevalence rates when you look at survivors of sexual violence compared to people who haven't experienced sexual violence. So when we look at those two groups, we find that victims of rape and sexual assault are more likely to experience several behavioral and psychological consequences. So compared to non-victims, survivors are three times more likely to suffer from depression, but sexual harm can also lead to increased anxiety and even OCD. They are six times more likely to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. They are 13 times more likely to abuse alcohol, which is something Alyssa and I both talked about a bit. Also 26 times more likely to abuse drugs. And lastly, they are four times more likely to contemplate suicide. And so just as some people may turn to alcohol or drugs as a way to forget painful memories or to numb feelings of distress and anxiety, or even as a coping mechanism, eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia can also be a way to exert control over the body and cope with negative emotions, which is something that I shared as well. I remember when I went to treatment for anorexia, we talked about trauma a lot, and I disclosed that I had been raped, and every other woman in the group had also been either raped or experienced child sexual abuse. So I think that anorexia and bulimia are fairly common responses to sexual violence. Deliberate self-harm, which Mo talked about briefly, is when people inflict physical harm on themselves, usually in private and without suicidal intentions. But some survivors may use self-harm to cope with difficult or painful feelings. So again, another coping mechanism. And some common forms of self-harm include biting or cutting, burning or scratching the skin, and even pulling out hair. So again, people might be trying to numb the pain, feel a release, or regain a sense of control. So unfortunately, this sense of relief is often very short-lived, and so the urge to harm yourself returns. So this encourages a cycle of self-harm that can cause some serious damage and infection, and sometimes life-threatening medical problems. We are really grateful that you have stuck with us this far. We are six episodes into this podcast, and we have covered some really difficult topics that are hard to hear. But especially in this episode, um, we got really personal. And two other people who we have a ton of respect for got really personal too. 
And so it's hard enough to listen to academic conversations about sexual violence. But in this episode, you really got a chance to hear about the way that this has impacted our lives and the lives of other survivors. So this may bring some stuff up for you. And just as you heard in the conversation with Mo and Guy, as we were talking, it jogged things for each of us. So you might find that that happens after you listen to this episode too. You might have wondered after you've experienced sexual harm or if you have a family member or a friend who has experienced it, why they are behaving in the ways that they are. And hopefully this episode shed some light on that for you. We will provide information in the blog post with links to resources because hearing an episode like this can be very, very difficult. So be kind to yourselves, practice self-care, and thank you for tuning in. We hope that you'll continue to do so. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear. Join us next time when we talk about the experiences that survivors have when they go through the criminal justice system. In this episode, Stacy Brancini, Alexa's mom, will be joining us for a candid conversation about the aftermath of Alexa's rape, including what the criminal justice process was like for their family. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.